Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 77, Moody Blues, to advance the history of liquid crystals through the 1960s and 1970s. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Back in episode 70, I provided an early history of liquid crystals, which were a chemical oddity but seemed to have no real practical value. That will change in this episode. At the end of episode 70, I provided a clue by mentioning research at RCA for new sorts of television displays. Let's now continue the story. In the early 1960s, RCA finally began to see returns on its heavy investment in color television technology from the 1950s. These color televisions were large, with bulky enough cabinetry to classify them as furniture. This was because, instead of one electron gun shooting a beam of electrons to a screen, there were now three guns shooting beams at the screen to excite phosphors of green, red, and blue. Plus, transistors weren't advanced enough yet to handle the high voltages that these electron guns needed, so the early color televisions required all, or mostly, big vacuum tube-based electronics. So RCA began to seek a smaller, so RCA began to seek smaller, lighter alternatives to the cathode ray tubes for televisions, with the idea of hanging a TV screen on the wall eventually. There was talk within RCA for a decade already since at least 1952 of such a wall TV set. Popular science fiction in the form of TV programs already had this idea in mind, including Star Trek and even the animated comedy show The Jetsons. So, how could this be done? An American physical chemist, Richard Williams, working for RCA at that time, was studying liquid crystals. He wasn't directly interested in new displays, but just the odd electro-optical effects we talked about in episode 70, like the Marconi patent on a light valve from the 1930s. Williams was most notably interested in what happened optically to pneumatic liquid crystals when you put an electric field across them. Did the wavelengths of light they absorbed change under the electric field? Recall the three known types of liquid crystals back then. Pneumatic you can envision or model as long pencils sliding and rolling around in a narrow box. Williams's idea was kind of like making a super-duper Marconi light valve. Maybe you could put it in an airplane pilot's windshield and it would switch on if a nuclear blast occurred and protect the pilot's vision. In 1962, Williams put a few grams of one of these pneumatic liquid crystal chemicals, para-azoxy in between two Pyrex slides. 
The inner sides of the glass slides were coated with a transparent electrical conductor. He mounted the sandwich on a heated microscope stage. Then he applied an electric field of one thousand volts per centimeter, which sounds like a lot, but we have only a very thin film of compound trapped between the two slides. He was surprised to see a weird crinkling effect that looks like long thin lines in the material, and more absorption of light. He turned off the electric field, and the liquid crystal became transparent. So instead of an optical bomb protection screen, he thought maybe it would work as a method for visual displays with individual pixels that would turn on and off. He wrote a patent submitted in November 1962 called "Electro-Optical Elements Utilizing an Organic Nematic Compound." The patent was granted in May 1967, four and a half years later. And yet the whole idea was, admittedly, iffy. Paraazooxyanisole needed to be heated up to cooking temperatures over 117 degrees Celsius for this to work, and there were no equivalent compounds that worked at room temperature. So he drifted off to other research at RCA. Meanwhile, another employee at RCA, young electronics and materials expert George Heilmeier. Wanted to use this newfangled laser technology for telecommunications. Can you modulate, that is, switch on and off, or adjust the brightness of a laser beam in step with audio signals? Can you transmit such an audio channel via a laser beam? The existing crystal modulators were hard to make, or need a lot of electrical power. Heilmeier got the idea of using Williams's liquid crystals as the cheap, easy modulator for a laser beam. You could adjust the voltage of the liquid crystal film between two glass plates and change the brightness of the laser beam passing through. Heilmeier took the scheme one step further. He tried dissolving a special dye in the liquid crystal compound. The dye's color depended on the angle from which you viewed it. And this often happens with certain crystals and how you view them through polarizers. One example is the semi-precious gem called tourmaline, which can change from yellow to brown. The phenomenon is called pleochromism, from Greek pleon, more, and chroma, color. So, with the pleochromic dye dissolved in a liquid crystal and placed between two plates of glass. With conductive transparent coatings, he applied a voltage, often only a few volts for such a thin film, across the liquid crystal mixture. The liquid crystal molecules changed their orientation, rotating the pleochromic dye molecules, making a color change visible through a polarizing filter. Heilmeier was able to see a change from, say, red to clear and back. And he called the dye molecule the guest, and the liquid crystal the host. The electro-optical effect was a guest-host effect. Heilmeier demonstrated his system to the higher-ups at RCA and got a team of seven researchers by March 1965 to work more on this fun stuff. After a couple of months, the team realized that the guest-host method was problematic. 
putting a polarizing filter in front of the plates seriously reduced the brightness of the display. The guests and hosts were not very stable, and the whole thing still had to be heated up to work right. But by May, Heilmeier had another breakthrough, what he called dynamic scattering. The new scheme didn't need guest molecules nor polarizing filters. The plates with thin film between them started out clear and turned an opaque white when you switched on the voltage. That is, the liquid crystals scattered the light when the voltage was dynamically switched on. The first guess as to the cause was ions pushing through the ordered arrays of liquid crystal molecules, causing disorder and light scattering. Later work showed that the liquid crystal molecules really align with the glass plates, but then forcing an electric field across the molecules makes them spin, causing the light to scatter. Eventually, he published his research in 1968 on dynamic scattering. Heilmeier and his team kept working on this liquid crystal display idea for the next couple of years. They found chemicals that were derivatives of anisilidine P aminophenyl acetate that would exhibit the electro optical effects at room temperature. By September 1967, Richard Klein, who was working in the Somerville, New Jersey RCA division on semiconductors, Went to the West Windsor Division to see Heilmeier's work. Heilmeier showed him the familiar glass sandwich with liquid crystal film between them and connected it to a power supply. Heilmeier turned on the switch and Klein saw a TV test pattern appear to his surprise. Heilmeier's team built a digital clock and a prototype cockpit display. Klein realized the potential for the liquid crystal display, for it was easily matched to the new integrated circuit technology and low voltages. The LCD display was now a reality. Klein's part in the project was now to make it scalable into an item suitable for mass production. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. I don't want to give the impression that only RCA was interested in liquid crystals. There was a slowly brewing interest in the chemical world in liquid crystals since the 1950s. One chemist was Glenn Brown at Kent State University, whom I mentioned in episode 70. Under his direction in 1965, the first international conference on liquid crystals was held at Kent State. I have a copy of the proceedings. So, liquid crystals were becoming the next chemical research fad anyway. By May 1968, along with Heilmeier's publication on dynamic scattering, RCA held a press conference in Rockefeller Plaza in Manhattan. Demonstrating this new liquid crystal display, 
and predicting big innovations. Instead of thousands of volts for a television set, you only needed maybe 10 or 15 volts. Even the best known lower voltage substitute, the Nixie tube, which is a relative of a neon bulb, needed 100 volts to get powered up. One fact often neglected about the press conference, though, is that the prototype digital clock failed a few minutes after the conference, showing that the early construction techniques needed improvement before marketing. Unfortunately, bad management in RCA caused the company to eventually abandon the liquid crystal display business. If you want more information on RCA's research into liquid crystals, check out Benjamin Gross's 2011 dissertation in the history of science called Crystallizing Innovation The Emergence of the LCD at RCA, 1951 to 1976. There was a rival in liquid crystal technology, and he was American scientist James Ferguson. Ferguson worked at Westinghouse Research Laboratories in the late 1950s and founded the first American team to research liquid crystals in 1957 before RCA got on board. An early success was a patent filed in 1964. Thermal imaging devices utilizing a cholesteric liquid crystalline phase material. This was how to make a colored visual representation of how hot something is, and he noted that, quote, in the home, the high temperature of kitchen utensils and the like presents a source of danger to persons, particularly children, who might come into contact with them, unquote. He also commented that it could be useful to prevent burns from hot industrial equipment and imagined decorative aspects of baby bottles, bathtub liners, and so on. The active material was a film of cholesteric liquid crystals. Recall from episode 70 that cholesteric liquid crystals are in layers. Each layer of molecules is like a set of pencils all parallel to each other. But the layers above and below have their molecules rotated by a certain amount. With enough layers, the top layer of parallel molecules rotates back to its original orientation, and the spacing and twist of the layers is similar to the wavelength of visible light, so that certain colors are reflected. If the material heats up, the spacing of the layers expands, and the reflected color shifts. So, Ferguson's device shows you by color how hot something is. We shall see other practical applications later, but you may have guessed one already. Ferguson joined the new Liquid Crystal Institute, which Glenn Brown set up at Kent State in 1965. He did publish papers at this time describing possible cholesteric materials for large panel displays. Just after RCA unveiled their dynamic scattering mode display method, Ferguson created the twisted pneumatic field effect liquid crystal display in August 1968. It works like this. First, I describe the off state with no voltage applied. 
The nematic liquid crystal is sandwiched between the two clear glass plates, but the bottom plate is etched so that the molecules automatically orient in one direction, and the top plate is etched and spaced away from the bottom plate so that the molecules are oriented 90 degrees from the bottom plate. The layers of liquid crystal molecules orient themselves from the bottom to the top plate with slight twists from one layer to the next. Polarizers are added above and below the glass plates, rotated 90 degrees to each other. You put light in through the bottom, and the polarized light is gradually twisted 90 degrees through the liquid crystal layers and out the top polarizer. That whole pixel is transparent. Now I describe the on state with voltage applied to the liquid crystal. The molecules orient themselves along the electric field like vertical pencils. The light can enter through one polarizer, but the polarizer on top won't let the light through because there is no twisting of the polarized light. The whole pixel is opaque or dark. By 1971, he had been granted a patent for this new method, and his company, International Liquid Crystal Company, or ELIXCO, in Kent, Ohio, began producing LCD displays for electronic wristwatches. The first watch firms to sell his displays in their watches were Bulova and Gruen. The first LCD display in a pocket calculator was apparently made by Rockwell. Their Acumatic 100 in 1972. By 1973, Sharp Corporation used such LCD displays in their pocket calculators, although the first Sharp calculators used RCA's dynamic scattering method initially. Ferguson's twisted pneumatic displays came a few years later. The advantage of LCDs over the rival LED method, which I hope to talk about in another episode, Is that the electricity requirement is much lower, meaning longer battery life and perhaps smaller batteries as well. So then we are back to thermochromic liquid crystals, those that change color with respect to temperature. The late 1960s found interest in using these compounds. To determine temperature in medical applications, one interesting use was painting liquid crystal compounds on breast tissue to determine cancer instead of dangerous x rays, finding where the placenta is in pregnant people, finding varicose veins, and even monitoring newborn babies. Rather than painting the compounds on bodies, Bayer Corporation tried placing the compounds on a plate, on a metal arm, And attached to a camera to take images. It was rather unwieldy and never really gained traction. An American engineer, Robert Parker, had heard of some of these effects and was interested in tracing electron beams and lasers by heat. He decided to hand paint numbers with different thermochromic liquid crystal compounds to make a thermochromic thermometer in the late 1960s, but the method was poor. The molecules oxidized in air, making the numerals fade and crack. Then the National Cash Register Company, with a team of researchers, 
patented a method granted in 1971 to encapsulate cholesteric liquid crystals in a gel and bind it to paper or plastic. This removed the oxidation in air problem. The next hassle was that these molecules were sensitive to ultraviolet light, which photodegraded them with their high energy photons. So Parker placed a piece of clear plastic in front of the liquid crystal panel to act as a UV blocker. By spring of 1972, he started selling his new thermochromic digital thermometers, and they were a smash hit. Which leads us to the next development of thermochromic liquid crystals several years later. A New York City entrepreneur, Joshua Reynolds, of the R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company family, came to Parker with another novelty idea. You take a small area of thermochromic film, put it inside plastic or glass, and attach it to a ring for your finger. And thus was invented the mood ring in 1975, and we finally get to the obscure reference in the title of this episode, as well as a fad of the mid 1970s that some of us of a certain age still remember. We close out this episode with a discovery by Indian physicist. Siva Ramakrishna Chandrasekhar, who had led a research group since the 1960s on liquid crystals at the University of Mysore, and then moved to the University of Bangalore in 1971. In 1977, he announced with co-workers a fourth type of liquid crystals beyond the nematic, smectic, and cholesteric. Chandrasekhar found that certain disc-shaped molecules stack up into columns, so they were originally called discotic liquid crystals. The structure of these molecules is a benzene ring, with six alkyl groups pointing out like a snowflake, with an overall flat disc structure. Later, other shapes are known to stack into columns, so often they are now generally called columnar liquid crystals. You might imagine many stacks of coins, but the stacks might be pointing in various directions, and the spacing between the coins may not be constant. The columns might be slanted, and there are a variety of ways that the discs might be arranged, depending on the molecule and the temperature. In our next episode, we hear about the liquid crystal display's rival, the light-emitting diode. And we make a return to materials chemistry. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. 